Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this podcast episode, we're talking with an expert about monkeypox and Japanese encephalitis. In May this year, new cases of the rare infection monkeypox, typically limited to Africa, began spreading within Europe and North America. More than 780 cases have now been reported across 15 countries, with Australia recently reporting eight cases. So what is it? Well, monkeypox is a viral zoonotic disease, a member of the same family of viruses as smallpox, and typically spread through close physical contact with skin lesions, body fluids, respiratory droplets, and contaminated materials such as bedding, and is much less infectious than respiratory illnesses such as COVID-19. Transmission of monkeypox virus by respiratory droplets would normally require prolonged face-to-face contact, so the apparent rapid spread of the virus may signal a shift in its behaviour, and some scientists have questioned if the virus may have mutated to become more transmissible. Well, what about its origins? Monkeypox derived its name after being described in 1958 as a pox-like disease noted in two colonies of crab-eating macaque monkeys that were being used for research purposes. However, the name is a misnomer, as it most commonly infects small African mammals and rodents. The first reports of monkeypox in humans was in 1970 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There are two strains recognised arising from rainforest regions of West and Central Africa. The West African strain has a 1-3% mortality and is the strain currently spreading beyond Africa. The Central African strain is more deadly with a 10% mortality rate. So what should we look for in our patients? Well, infection is characterised by lymphadenopathy, muscle aches, fever, headache, and a pustular rash developing one to three days after the fever, typically starting on the face before spreading to other parts of the body. It's estimated that just 3% of close contacts of monkeypox will become infected. However, asymptomatic spread is being postulated, and another unusual feature of the current outbreak is the detection of cases through the sexual health services and amongst same-sex men. As smallpox was declared eradicated in 1980, the last mass vaccination against smallpox was in the 1970s, and it's speculated that declining herd levels of immunity against smallpox may be leading to the current propensity for transmission. And shortly, we'll be commencing an interesting conversation with ID physician Dr. Alex Tai. He's an infectious disease specialist with a special interest in public health, tropical medicine, multi-drug microbial resistance, and travel medicine, who will enrich our knowledge on this emerging and complex subject and cover both epidemiology, management, and treatments. But I thought it might also be interesting to expand the conversation to discuss the recent spike in cases of Japanese encephalitis reported in Australia, noting that JEV is mosquito-borne, presenting with fever, vomiting, and headache, and linked to piggeries, as well as pig-handling and abattoirs. Please welcome Dr. Alex Tai to the podcast. Dr. Alex Tai, thank you for coming to Everyday Medicine with me today. I really appreciate you making time, particularly on the weekend, Alex, uh, where I'm drawing you away from your responsibilities in infectious diseases. Uh, your public health responsibilities, your private responsibilities, all those COVID patients you've been treating, the monkeypox patients you've been perhaps uh, thinking about, and Japanese encephalitis, which is what we're going to talk about in a moment. Before we sort of launch into our discussion about monkeypox and Japanese encephalitis, you know, what we should know and what we should be looking for, um, Alex, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into medicine? You're an IT physician. Take me through it, Alex. Where have you come from? Where are you going? 
Well, thanks, Luke, for having me today. And look, the, the pleasure's all mine. So just to begin with, I mean, just welcome the country. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians, the land to which we're all being today and for where you're listening to this podcast from. And so the people of the Kulin Nation from where I am, and I pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Look, a bit about myself, look, so obviously a long history of different things all throughout um, the past few years as well as in the pandemic. So um, I'm currently an ID physician working mainly in the Gippsland area. Yes. Also have done a lot of private work in southeastern, mainly eastern metropolitan Melbourne. But I mean, my interest in infectious diseases really started, I mean, just to give you a, a snapshot really when I was actually in my teenage years. So back then I read a book called The Hot Zone. I'm not sure whether that's a book you read before. It's actually a book by Richard Preston describing the Ebola outbreak. So in fact, even back before 2015, 2014, when that massive Ebola outbreak happened in West Africa, I mean, that was already my interest. You know, I want to do medicine because I wanted to actually hunt down Ebola across, you know, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. And that's what I'll do for the rest of my life. But obviously, you know, when it all happened, I just got married. And I didn't think that would be the wisest thing to do. Dangerous. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> and so obviously, you know, but that's where a lot of my interest in infectious uh -huh. diseases first started. And, you know, my, my pathway has really taken me from, a metropolitan training area, so train at Monash, train at the Austin, um, and then eventually found myself doing a lot more regional work. So in Geelong, Ballarat, did a stint in Alice Springs for six months. Oh. So a lot of pathology there. Yes, but I always yeah. had, a, and then came back to Geelong and came back to Melbourne for family reasons. So I had young kids, so I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. But my interest really lies in that regional focus, so provision of specialist care in that regional area. So hence, I found myself back in Warrigal when I came back to Melbourne. That was the nearest town that was actually closer to where we were in Southeast Melbourne. And then over time, as the pandemic has unfolded, you know, down the Traugan and, you know, my remit from infectious diseases has broadened then the public health. And that really started coming about when you probably, you probably saw during the second wave, all those COVID cases started rising. Mm -hmm. And it became quite clear that there was a need for more public health on the ground um, work. And I guess at that point in time, and I'm sure in previous podcasts that you've discussed, the Department of Health is really just one centralized body at 50 Longsdale Street managing all these thousands of COVID cases. Mm. And it was just absolutely impossible. So from there, became the nine public, local public health units. And so I was part of the Gibson public health unit from the beginning um, in 2020, stepped out of it for a while, came back in again just before the Omicron wave. So that's basically what I'm doing right now. So working from a public health standpoint, as well as from a clinical infection disease, mainly in the Gibson area. Yeah, that, that is fascinating. I, I think a uh, whole focus, uh, you know, has been brought to uh, think about infectious diseases since this pandemic. But uh, I've read a little bit about uh, epidemics, pandemics, uh, been a few books that I've read about it and, uh, and I've listened to some conversations about that early um, sort of discovery of Ebola and it, it is a fascinating yeah. area. One of my friends is in Singapore, Dale Fisher. He, yeah. he He's involved in, uh, you know, kind of on a more uh, uh, world stage, uh, these pandemics, and it, it's incredibly interesting. And I, I think Yuval Harari in uh, Homodeus wrote, something like uh, he said something like you know we're not going to have any more pandemics i'm sure he's really ruining that statement uh he got that completely and utterly wrong though he's right about lots of things um yep. you know we've just seen uh, the world being turned upside down and um you know it, it's great to have you in public health and guiding us and i have to say i very much appreciate your posts on linkedin which are of high quality alex i mean that uh, you know it's how i was trying to reach out to you because that they're extremely informative and you know please keep on doing that like i think it's very very helpful i wanted to talk a little bit about you know this monkeypox uh mm. virus uh, which is not a pandemic but it's it's spreading i don't think we're calling it a pandemic yet uh, mate, you might correct me but when i spoke to you a few weeks ago there'd only be 120 cases worldwide and about 
three, two to three in Australia. Now we've had 70, 80, 780 worldwide, eight cases yeah. in Australia. And it got me reading a little bit about it, about its interesting origins and, uh, you know, p- perhaps the misnomer that it's called monkeypox. Um, mm. Can I ask you a little bit about, tell us a little bit about what its origins are and then we can, you know, you can take us through this whole interesting subject, monkeypox. Over to you, Alex. Well, thanks, Luke. And, you know, the, just to actually pick up one of your points there. So as of maybe next week, hopefully, so the WHO actually is meeting urgently, they've used the word urgently to discuss renaming the disease. So in by yes. the time this podcast is released, this may be obsolete as with everything happening right now in our yes. current pandemic era. So the name monkeypox itself has a lot of, you know, racial overtones to it as well. If you, if you look at the literature, for example, a lot of people describe the West African clay or the Central African clay. So, you know, limiting or describing disease based on geographic areas. And we know from COVID that we've actually moved away from that, you know, the Wuhan disease or the India strain of COVID. So that's a big shift right now that's happening. So over the next one or two weeks, or by the time this podcast is released, you may find that monkeypox is something else completely different. And the strains of monkeypox are also renamed. Right. Um, so that's, that bit is probably going to be shifting. But, you know, just to answer your question about where it's come from, you know, it is a viral zoonosis or virus transmitted look from humans to animals and with symptoms very similar to smallpox. So some, a disease of, you know, pandemic potential that we've actually known from a lot of um, history. It's less clinically severe, monkeypox, compared to smallpox. Um, in fact, humans are also then the accidental hosts um, in this whole chain of transmission. So it's um, so monkeypox, as, you know, as I've described, it's part of what we call the orthopoxivirus family or poxviridae family. So related to smallpox, cowpox, um, and there's two main clades, as we, you know, I've described. There's the West African clade. This may be renamed in a few weeks. So 1% to 3% mortality. Yes. There's the Congo Basin of Central African clade, which is the 10% mortality. And what we're it's seeing high. right now... It's very serious. It's it very, high, very mm. high. So encephalitis, pneumonitis. So similar also, I guess, in some ways to chickenpox, where you can get severe complications. And what we're seeing right now in a lot of non-endemic areas, Luke, is... Um, the, tri- the idea of this West African clade, so the 1% to 3% mortality. But it's interesting, we'll, we'll talk about it a bit more, but what we're seeing about the disease right now, it's acting very differently. It's acting very differently to how we've seen it happen in the past, and so mm-hmm. hence potentially the shift of nomenclature away from these different geographic areas. But, I mean, the name itself you know, originates just as a bit of trivia, because I know you like a bit of trivia there, Luke. Uh, it was actually initially from the discovery of monkeys, so viruses in these monkeys and outbreak facilities in in Denmark, so in Copenhagen. So this is back in 1958. Yes, the Macau. Yes. A- absolutely. So, I mean, that's in fact, I mean, if you, if you know a bit about Ebola too, that's actually, there's also a massive Ebola outbreak in, um, so, so not, not Ebola, so Marburg. So you know, oh. Marburg virus was first described yes. also in an animal facility in Europe. So that's where a lot of things ha- have been described. But two outbreaks in 1958 in Denmark, um, and hence monkeypox elsewhere was first actually noticed. And then the first human case though was actually identified in the 1970s, yes. around the same time that Ebola started happening and just before the HIV pandemic. And it's interesting, I mean, all of this basically is on the back of, uh, so it just happened just before, obviously, the smallpox immunization program started actually winding down in the 1980s. Yes. yes. And so obviously, one of the very unique here right now about having this very vulnerable population of people not vaccinated against smallpox, because there is some cross-protection, about 85% with smallpox vaccine against protecting against monkeypox. So that could be one of the reasons why we're actually seeing potentially more monkeypox right now, because it's actually a vulnerable population that we're actually seeing that hasn't been vaccinated against smallpox. So that's another side discussion. Yes. Um, there's a whole, this whole description about epidemiology. So, I mean, very few, I mean, 
in terms of case numbers, I mean, first described in the 1970s, there have been cases described scattered all throughout many Central Africa, um, West Africa, and you know what you described, I guess, in those, in those different geographic clades that are described. Yes. Um, there's a big outbreak in Nigeria, but if you actually look over the past 20 years, I mean, there has been actually a gradual uptick in cases, Luke. Okay. And that's where we talk about the smallpox, you know, smallpox vaccine, immunity yes. waning. Yes. Um, so there have been a gradual uptick in cases. And we're talking about you know, 700 cases, 800 cases, for example, yes. in, a, yes. in a geographic area over a period of a few years. So not a lot compared to COVID, for, for example, but significant enough that you know, there was a gradual uptick over a 20, 30-year period. And then essentially there's been scattered cases of disease described in travelers. So the first described case of travelers for monkeypox was in the US so in 2003. And then over since, since, since then, you know, Singapore, a few other different places, the UK, people returning from Nigeria, they've been described up to obviously this point of the, pen, of the outbreak. I, I nearly use the word pandemic there. That's the word I'm yes. using right now, the, of the outbreak where, you know, we're seeing a whole lot of monkeypox cases, you know, in non-endemic areas yes. um, with initially some links to Central Africa. But right now, the vast majority of cases with no known epidemiological links. So there must have been some contact with someone, you think, from one of those sort of more endemic areas. Uh, we, we, we would imagine, but that's not being, it's not, that's not clear. So. Well, going back, going back, look to the first, it was first described from a, in a non-endemic setting in the UK, actually. And if you actually look at there, I mean, there's all these timelines there, but there was one case of a traveler that happened a few weeks before um, the actual current few cases that then basically, you know, resulted in this outbreak described in the UK and eventually in Portugal and a few other different places around the Europe, around the European areas. But, if you look at the number of cases that happened simultaneously, it would have had to actually been spread a lot earlier than that. That makes any sense. It would have had to, had to be circulating somewhere. Yes. Unless there was, a, a, there was an event where there was a mass gathering of people that disseminate or disperse it in one go. But the way that this all happened across multiple countries so quickly probably implied that it was recirculating to something that was undetected in the community. But yes, there, there would have had to be some links initially from um, yeah. You know, either from an African country or from another country with uh, which is endemic with, yeah. uh, with with monkeypox. So we've got we've got we've got uh, ailing immunity because uh, smallpox vaccination has was was wound down in the eighties. We've got you know this now increased. Well, we've got geographical spread happening again, I guess, because uh, travel's opening up since the you know a bit more travel now since the COVID situation seems to be sort of coming under some control. And but with but there are also some question marks, some some curious things here we don't completely understand about a lot it. of question marks and and questions about you know whether the virus is mutated perhaps in some way to change its transmissibility. Um, I just want to go back a little bit to those macaque monkeys. It's not endemic in the monkey population, as I understand. It's more like rodents and so forth in in Central uh, Africa, as I understand it. But do we know how they? How did those macaque monkeys that happened to be in Belgium get that? They must have been infected before they were brought out from Africa, I'm guessing. They, they would have had to be in look. And it's funny because this story is so similar to a lot of other viruses of pandemic potential. You actually hear Ebola is another good example, very similar yeah. example of outbreaks in monkeys in Europe or even the US. So yes, you would have had to have a, a, you know, a group of monkeys that would have had been infected before they arrived. Yeah. And then obviously when they arrived, that's when you were, it was first noticed and described. Yes, incredible. So what sort of, uh, just in terms of the risks and, and the transmissibility of it, t tell us about who's getting monkeypox at the moment? Who are the people that we need to sort of be, you know, watching in our community? So this is where we need to be very careful with our lingo. Um, so officially, as of, you know, from historical definition, human-to-human -human transmission has always been 
described as from close contact with infectious skin lesions. So if you have a, if, you know, if you have a break in your skin, mm. um, you have a vesicle that's in contact with somebody else, um, with a break in their skin, mucous membranes, um, sexual contact has been described, I guess, up to this point right now, but a lot of that is thought to be from close contact yes. um, rather than from sexual transmission. So that's one, so that has been the dogma all along close um, okay. human to human contact. Not as well, Not correct, as, well, as well as droplet, droplet spread. So that is also has been described similar also to chickenpox. I mean, if you had somebody with disseminated VZV or chickenpox, it, it can aerosolize potentially. Mm. Um, so that's why also if, if you look at all the guidelines right now, if you had somebody with suspected monkeypox, the recommendations right now is airborne precautions plus contact precautions. So it's, all, it's actually very similar to COVID. The, the risk of it becoming airborne is thought to be, or aerosolizing is thought to be less compared to something like um, VZV or even smallpox, but I mean, that's an added layer of protection that we've actually taken. So droplet precaution, droplet um, spread as well as physical spread. And, and we're seeing it, the three cases, or sorry, the eight cases now reported in Australia all being travellers who have come back from, from Europe, I think. I, I can't be sure if it wasn't one of those from America, but we're, we're not, I mean, at the moment, I guess our concerns are just about travellers. What would we expect to look for if someone comes in and we think, oh, they've got an unusual presentation with the fever and so forth. So take us through the sort of things that we should look for clinically. Yep. So in terms of the clinical manifestation of the disease, I mean, it's, it's actually very similar to a lot of other pox viruses. So you get this prodromal symptoms and you get the systemic symptoms of fever, chills, muscle ache, um, swollen lymph nodes, um, lymphadenopathy, which is also then different to, it's, which is more prominent than smallpox. Not that many of us see smallpox nowadays, unless you're working in certain labs around the world. Luke. But so after that initial you know, first one or three days, which is, I guess, what you know when they describe that systemic symptom, that's where you get the rash. And the classic description of the rash, and this is what has been changing, has been what we call this centrifugal spread. So spreading from um, the face um, and spreading, um, you know, spreading from the face to the hands, to the torso, to the legs, and to the peripheral areas. What we've been noticing, interestingly, right now is that we've also seen a lot more local spread. So, for example, starting from the genital area the anal genital area, and then spreading the all staying local. So that's actually a different description of how monkeypox has acted in the past. Once again, contrasting this also to, um, to chickenpox, where the rash tends to actually just, it's what we call monophasic rash that happens all at the same time. Whereas um, for monkeypox, that tends to actually, you can get it in different um, stages, of the rash in different stages. So you have the initial systemic symptoms, and then the rash, and the rash itself goes through this, um, you know, macule, papule, vesicles, uh, pustules, all these different dermatology descriptions, and then basically you have a scab which then falls off. And that's usually where you can be quite infectious because you can get the fluid from the vesicles potentially actually transmitting virus. You can also then potentially transmit virus through droplets. And then the symptoms usually resolve um, look within two to four weeks. So it usually happens, and most people actually are managed quite well in the community. In fact, the vast majority of people in the UK, in the Europe, um, the European, US um, data are coming in, a lot of them are actually quite well. But you can get uncommon complications, which is then where that mortality yes. is coming from. We need more data still for our current outbreak, but pneumonitis and cephalitis. Yeah. Um, site-threatening keratitis, which is actually very different to chickenpox. You can get really bad keratitis. And as well as you know, people have, have also been described to dying of bacterial infections or secondary bacterial infections after their monkeypox infection. So that's what we need to be looking out for. And I guess if you think of that, I mean, that's quite a common mm presentation i mean fever rash and in a lot of places um and, and i guess it's also worthwhile mentioning that 
a lot of the cases that we are seeing in a lot of these areas have been in certain um, epidemiological populations or certain populations. So, for example, people identify as you know, gay, bisexual, men or sex men, for example. And I suspect a lot of that could also just be a reporting bias, you know, very um, positive health-seeking behavior from certain populations. Yes. But upon saying that, um, you know, if, for example, you were in a high-risk epidemiological population, had a fever and rash, and that's when we'll basically be saying, you know, look, seek um, medical advice. Yes. And then it is on, on the owners of the medical profession to really be able to actually go, all right, fever and rash, certain epidemiological risks, that's, you know, some of that, fever and rash is quite common. How do we then distinguish that with other differentials, which I'll go through in a short while, <laughs> with monkeypox? Because if you think of it, that would mean that you'd just be overwhelming the testing system with, with monkeypox tests. So it does, it does require a degree of risk assessment about look how likely is this person to be in contact with somebody else with monkeypox. And the Department of Health has been contact tracing a lot of these cases. Um, but if someone has come back from overseas and someone's in a high-risk population, what is my degree of suspicion that this could be monkeypox? If we were sitting beside someone on an airplane who had monkeypox, Alex, what would be the chance? There's no, just, uh, it's a stranger, there's no contact, physical contact, we're just sitting beside them. Would there be any chance of transmission? Well, only if they were very active in terms of a pneumonitis and coughing a lot. That would be about the only possibility. So, so going back actually to what happened with our initial cases, so when they actually came in via international flight into Victoria, um, so the contact tracing that was done actually was done, obviously the whole plane was put on alert, but the specific contacts that were deemed close contacts that needed to isolate were actually only in the seats around the oh. case itself, acknowledging that it's likely droplet spread rather than airborne. Yes. But, you know, obviously a degree of precaution had to be taken to the whole plane. In some strange way, look, I think the plane's actually the safest place to be if you actually had an airborne, you know, all the HEPA filters that have been installed in the plane. I mean, up to this point before we had air filters coming into the hospitals and yes. you know, schools. So, yeah, so within the, the, the vicinity of the plane, but I mean, if you think of measles, for example, measles is a lot more transmissible. Yes, yes. So if you get one measles case in the plane, yes. you know, all havoc is actually um, you know, yeah. it, it, it's wrought on that. So that's a little bit different. Yes. Uh, well, look, that, thank you very much. What, what about uh, treatment is largely supportive, um, I think we're saying there. It, it, do we have any active treatments of patients that, you know, deteriorate to a point of encephalitis or pneumonitis? Are, are the treatments that we can provide them? A, lo a lot of them, uh, and obviously because we haven't had that many cases up to this point, a lot yeah. of it, actually, in terms of data, a lot of it hasn't had a lot of data backing up. But sodophobia has been something that actually has been you know, proposed in terms mm -hmm. of monkeypox infection. Mm -hmm. And also... Um, Brincidofavir, which is another um, oral medication used for smallpox, so going back to the 70s, as well as something called Tecoviramat, which has also been used for smallpox. It's an oral medication. All these medications are hard to come by. Obviously, they have to be approved yes. through the Department of Health, but um, they have been used overseas um, for severe complicated or severe disease. Yes. Um, but not a lot of it, essentially. Look, we, a lot of it right now is mainly supported care, but also acknowledging that most people actually recover quite well. Yes. Well, look, thank you very much for that. And I'll ask you one question that I suppose probably can't be answered exactly, but where do you think it's going to go, like in terms of monkeypox? Where do you see the future of this? Do you think it's just going to uh, slowly just die up, expunge, you know, people will be isolated so they won't transmit it? Or what, what, what's your, do you have a prediction? I'm going to put you in the hot seat here, Alex. Give us your prediction about monkeypox. No, that's a loaded question. I'll choose my words very carefully then, just in case it, this gets quoted in multiple newspapers all around the world. <laughs> I'm sure it won't look, but, you know, um, looking at... Alex, I said it here first. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. You know, look, looking at how it's progressing right now, so we have... The cases are increasing. So, I mean, you know, different numbers, different, you know, but we definitely have 
anywhere from you know a couple of hundred to a thousand plus cases worldwide. And that number is obviously increasing right now. Yes. And the one thing that we've been hoping up to this point and all public health measures have been actually yes. geared towards is can we actually prevent this from becoming endemic? Can we capture cases and prevent it from establishing itself in Australia? Almost, it's, it's not COVID, but it almost feels like the same discussions of COVID. Mm -hmm. COVID just basically, you know, normalized a whole lot of these public health discussions for most communicable diseases. But the hope is that it doesn't become endemic. But looking at where we're moving to right now, I suspect in the long run, you know, we might have to live with monkeypox um, rather than actually try to keep it out. But obviously, there's a lot of unknowns right now. We don't know where this is going. We know that the case numbers are increasing. I would, I would basically still say, look, there's still a very high chance that we'll, we'll keep seeing an increased number of cases because of the low vaccine. Yes. Um, you know, well, in terms of smallpox vaccine, there's, a, there's very little immunity in the community. So mm -hmm. I suspect we'll, it, the, the trend will be upwards. Um, as to where that ends, I'm not entirely sure. It, will, it definitely won't be like COVID because of the transmissibility being a lot less compared to COVID. Yes. But if you think of it, I mean, it's... There's a whole lot of unknown. So is it sexually transmitted? I mean, that's also a very important question. That hasn't been proven just yet. Mm -hmm. Is it going to become something like, you know, um, HSV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, eventually that way we had to learn to live with it from a, from a sexual health standpoint? Um, and then it becomes part of that is it from the clinical management or is it going to turn to something else? That, there's a lot of unknowns there. Mm -hmm. Look, thank you very much for taking us through that. And, you know, that we might have another conversation, you know, perhaps in six months about this uh, condition, but that's very, very helpful. Thanks for guiding me through that. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was something was in the press earlier in the year, and we haven't really seen this become a big problem here in Australia, but Japanese yep. encephalitis. Mm. Uh, tell us about that. Japanese encephalitis, piggeries, what's the link? Tell us all about that. Uh, uh, you know, a little pricey on that one. Yeah, Japanese encephalitis is another fascinating um, known tropical disease that we haven't actually thought of as an endemic disease in Australia for a long time. I mean, I remember going through med school and learning about JE as something exotic. We call it an exotic infectious disease known only in far-flung area, areas of Asia. But if you look at, in terms of viral encephalitis, it's actually uh, you know, of, of epidemic potential. It actually is very common in Asia, very common in Southeast Asia. And you know causes a lot of cases, thousands, tens of thousands of cases. So it's been well described. It just obviously hasn't been described in temperate areas like Australia up to this point. And I know that this is a discussion about um, the clinical manifestations of JE, but I just also want to say that that also highlights the issue of climate change. I know that that's an absolutely non-political discussion, but you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's a very big thing because yeah. with the changing weather patterns, with the mosquito population um, changing, with the migration of birds, all those things which I can chat about actually have links with the transmission of the disease. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's where we're seeing... Um, you know, JE slowly coming in. And of course, then that also branches up to is obviously going to see more dengue. I want to be seeing an increase in Murray Valley, for example. So yeah. all those things, you know, come about. But it was described a long time ago. It was first described in, you know, it was isolated in 1935, 1936, somewhere around there. But what has been described even Japan. So that's where the term Japanese encephalitis comes in. First described in Japan um, in 1871, to be exact. So that was. Um, and then obviously it's the most common vaccine preventable cause of encephalitis in Asia, in Asia. So we're talking about, you know, 70,000, 80,000 cases. So a lot of cases mm. and it, it's, it's pre predominantly a disease in children. Um, most kids basically get it in a lot of non-endemic areas. We see more cases, most cases in adults because that's obviously in a, in a naive population. That's where we actually see most people become in contact with um, mm. being exposed to JE, but primarily a disease in, in children. Um, the links to Australia have been thought to be through the Torres Strait. We've noted it actually in the Torres Strait um, for quite some time. 
um, detected in the mosquito population there with the cases in the Torres Strait, but hasn't actually been described in the mainland for um, quite some time. I think from memory, I need to get this information correct. I think from memory, we had a case not too long ago, I think just before this current outbreak, I think 2021. And then obviously right now we've had a, a clustering of cases in across different states. Mm. It's interesting how it also began because it actually didn't begin with a clinician, unlike monkeypox, where it was, you know, very judicious GPs going, this is really unusual. Mm. In fact, for JE, it actually was first described in the piggeries. So I don't know how much you know about, um, you know, agriculture and your, your pigs and, and horses, but um, look, you know, it was with this not, notice of mummified pigs. You know, mummified so pigs coming out stillborn and had this mummified appearance. And that's actually quite classic for um, JE infection. So when you get JE infecting pigs, which are actually, um, you know, that, that's where you can actually get these mummified pigs. And so that was what was described initially in, um, in Australia. Um, so stillborn still, still piglets. Stillborn, weak piglets. Right. And then basically from there, it was confirmed initially by the Department of Agriculture as JE. This is back in February, so about mid-February, end of February. And then from there, there was this whole cascade of communication between the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Health. And then basically, this, you know, anybody with symptoms consistent in encephalitis looked at, there was a whole massive look back. And that's where they found more and more cases. So this basically all happened really quickly from February to March. Just within, I think, just under two weeks, that's when, you know, acting chief medical officer Sonia Bennett basically said, look, you know, this is this, this unfolding situation of concern. Um, in Australia, uh, incident of national significance, that was the title she used, national incident yes. national, of national significance, which required all the states and territories to work together to actually find a coordinated approach to this. And then that's where after they, they found cases, they found, that's what initially found pigs, piglets infected, pigs infected, and then human cases infected. And then that's where then isolated mos uh, JEB and mosquitoes a few weeks nice. later from there. So definitely, definitely found locally. I suspect, look, this has been happening for a lot longer than yes. that February, March period. Because if yes. you think of how um, JE infects pigs, so basically in terms of getting mummified pigs, most sows basically are pregnant for about 100 plus days. This is something I had to look up myself when all this happened. And no idea how long pigs are pregnant, so 100 plus days. And that's why a lot of us, we actually had to go back and look back at, all right, what about the December period? So if there was mummified piglets in february going back to december so there must have been infection in december yes and so that's when we start looking back at human cases and that that piece of work right now that retrospective look back is still unfolding but i think as of this could be up to date right now but as of a few weeks ago the number of cases human cases so far stand at 40 so it doesn't sound like a lot but if you think of this for jev look for every one case of jev that you have there's probably about a hundred that are undetected. And that's quite important for JEB because the clinical presentation of JEB is the vast majority of people are asymptomatic or are mildly symptomatic. So the, the, the mantra is 90% of the people will be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. 10% of people will have, um, you know, more severe neurological symptoms. Um, and then that 1% of people, sorry, 10% will be, will be mildly symptomatic. And that 1% will basically have the severe neurological symptoms. So you're talking about encephalitis, seizures, um, you know, presentations of um, spastic paresis, for example, um, mm -hmm. which can also mimic polio, just as a bit of trivia. So that would also mean that there's a whole lot of people yes. in Victoria, in Australia, that potentially we are missing, which is a scary thought, which meant that this was likely introduced a lot earlier than we thought. So yeah. right now, something else that's happening apart from a clinical look back of cases of un uh, of, of encephalitis of a known unknown etiology is also a serosurvey. 
so a serial survey of, of a population around the piggeries around the state um, to actually see how much uh, how much immunity is there out there how much exposure does the population actually have to Jamie? That would be a very interesting look. That would be, that would be a fascinating study. So are we saying, first of all, it's unusual because it's in the temperate zones. Second of all, it's mosquitoes that are biting the pigs. Is that right? Um, mosquitoes are transmitting it. Are the mosquitoes biting the pigs? Is that what happens? And they're transmitting the virus to the pig. And then, uh, unfortunately, the piglets die. Uh, they're mummified. And then those mosquitoes, that mosquito population is also biting people in the agricultural yeah kind of location, transmitting the virus that way. Okay. Yep. No, so, so just to clarify, apologies for that. So in terms of life cycle and transmission, um, there's, there's two main life cycles. There's what we call the sylvatic life cycle, which is that wild, that wild cycle. So it involves water birds and herons. Right. So that's where you get um, herons, mosquitoes, mosquitoes biting herons or water birds, and it goes around from there. So that's why a lot of that has been described in the rice fields, in, um, okay. in a lot of areas right. in, in Asia. So a lot of, Right. Correct. A lot of our travelers, for example, that have come back from Bali, or the, they haven't been that many. I mean, prior to this episode and this outbreak, I mean, we've had only a smattering of cases I can count with my, my two hands. Yeah. Um, with cases recurring back from um, Bali, from Southeast Asia, and a lot of times there's this link to rice fields or links to waterways. And that's because the life cycle itself involves water birds, mosquito, the Culex species mosquito, and, and water birds. So it goes around in that. But pigs are amplifying hosts. Pigs are amplifying hosts. So it can be part of that cycle. It can be part of the cycle. It doesn't have to be. But whenever you have pigs involved in that, that's where you get the viral load increasing to multiple loads. And that's where you get increased transmissibility. You can get transmission from water birds to humans, but because pigs itself are so well uh, suited to actually having viral replication to high numbers, that's where you get the increased transmissibility. Horses and humans, so it has been described horses and for a bit of trivia, look, mm. alpaca, there's one alpaca in South Australia that was, that had detection of JEP. One alpaca. You never liked alpacas, Alex. Well, there you are, but. Yeah, so all alpacas. I'm only joking. I love alpacas. I love it. It's a, bit, it's a bit like the COVID story where, you know, someone's horse had, had a detection of COVID and, and all that. Anyways, so horses and humans are dead and whole. So insufficient levels mm. of viremia. So look, if you had JEV, if I had a mosquito bite you and bit bite me, the chance of transmission is low because we don't mount that sufficient level of viremia, right. even though we get quite sick to transmit the virus. Right. And that's why pigs, that's, that's why true. piggeries, so hence the links to piggeries. Yes, I see. Important. So coming back to the Victoria and Austria. That's, that absolutely. Virus, yeah. that's fascinating. Life cycle. And I haven't had that described before. So thank you for clarifying that. That's incredibly interesting. Do you think, uh, could JV be something we might see, let's say they don't have encephalitis and more severe presentation, but as a fatigue type syndrome, you know, people often come into the clinic, oh, I've got fatigue and you don't quite know what that is exactly, but would it, could it present like that, a low level uh, of the infection just causing fatigue? Is that something that's been described or not? So, you know, like Ross River, a bit of arthritis yeah. and so forth. We're seeing so many of these sorts of things, particularly with the flooding. But uh, what, what do you think about that? Is that something we should think about or not at all? No, I mean, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good point, Look, I mean, we, we know for Ross River and now with COVID, with long COVID, that you can get this post-viral syndrome yes. of you know, chronic fatigue type picture. And so there's no reason why JEV would also um, be different. I mean, that can happen with EBV, that can happen with any yes. severe any viral infection. Yeah. Well. Um, but we also know from the description of the disease, you get this acute phase and then basically most people get better. Or, so, I mean, the, 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 the classical rules of three, isn't it? The rules of three for anything. So one third of people are fine, one third of people take a little bit longer to get better. 
Yes. Uh, and one third of people actually do struggle with, of the people that have severe disease, by the way. So this is not all people infection. Yes. We're talking about the people that actually are on that spectrum of that, you know, that, that single digit other that one to nine percent somewhere around there. So most people actually, most people recover. One third of people recover. One third of people take a bit longer to actually take weeks or months. One third of people do really badly. And, you know, this is where you then have severe neurological sequelae. We don't see that a lot here because we only have a handful of cases. But if you look at Southeast Asia and South Asia and East Asia, I mean, yeah. these are children that need a lot long periods of rehab. These are some people that actually are yeah. um, in nursing homes or in, in rehab facilities for, or, or placement for a long period of time because they have such severe neurological sequelae um, that they require long-term care for the rest of their life. Wow, gosh, well, thanks for expanding our knowledge on that one. I certainly won't be going to any piggeries in uh, Southeast Asia, I can tell you. Yeah. Thank you very much. You've warned me off that completely. And I'm going to be just a little bit careful with our packers as well going forward, Alex. Um, Alex, thanks very much for this you know, incredible conversation about like, monkeypox and JEV. It's really, you know, I, I very much uh, appreciate your discussion. Um, you're passionate about infectious diseases. Just give me a take for a young, uh, say, medical graduate coming into the profession. Should they do ID? T- take us through that. Is it, a good, is it a good pathway? It sounds like it's an incredible pathway and certainly a fascinating one, but what, what's your take on that? I reckon in my very unbiased opinion, everybody should do ID, Luke, but <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, just, just for, I guess, all those medical students and people considering a career, uh, you know, what the career options are in, on this, listening to this podcast. I mean, infectious diseases has an incredibly broad remit. So, you know, you can do clinical infectious diseases, which is what I've done for a long time, where you manage patients clinically with complicated infections, with um, you know, travel associated or tropical infections. So that's clinical infectious diseases, but you also have, the option of doing microbiology. So a lot of microbiologists are also ID physicians, or you can just be a you know, straight microbiologist through the College of Pathology. But a lot of, a lot of um, ID physicians also have dual training. So you can also just choose to do that. And that's more from a micro level. And you also then have to the micro level, the clinical level, you also then have what I would term the macro perspective of ID, which is the public health perspective. And a lot of public health obviously is a lot broader than communicable diseases. I mean, it involves a lot of other things apart from infections. But it also flows naturally into that public health discussion. So you're talking about vaccination, you're talking about the management of clinical diseases. I mean, it flows naturally into that space, which is the space I'm moving in right now. So incredibly diverse amount of options. Um, so, and a lot of us ID physicians tend to be about altruistic. We tend to want to save the world. Uh, we tend to want to do crazy things like pack up and go to um, sub-Saharan Africa to deal with an Ebola outbreak, you know, yes. despite the fact that we have kids at home. So a lot of us tend to be in that camp because we all want to save the world, but it's, it's a good specialty to be part of and obviously a very dynamic, changing specialty. Alex, thank you so much. That's a, that's a lovely way to complete this podcast. I really appreciate your discussions and I'm going to welcome you back to talk a bit about uh, some other things shortly. So thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in the conversation with Alex on monkeypox and JEV. I really did find that illuminating. His knowledge is vast and his enthusiasm for these conditions is as infectious as the very conditions themselves. During the podcast, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and maybe email to manager at